Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Uh, did you guys know that you can just watch the Donmar Warehouse production online now? Yep, like, I knew. It's, uh, it's on the Internet Archive, and you can just watch it. Hiddles Elena. S- yeah. Do you know that that production cuts out the explicit references to rats, as I recall? Weird. I feel like I have I a distinct why. memory of sitting with Jess on your couch and watching that production Couldn't and waiting and waiting and waiting. Couldn't have been. Oh, it was, was it? Um, Someone else. It, it was, what's his me, name? Because I didn't have a couch. It was the other, like, handsome one British guy. Oh, the Gerard Not- Butler one? No, maybe it was the Ray Fiennes. Oh, the Ray Fiennes the movie. One. That's the one I'm talking the about. The Ray Fiennes movie. Yeah, Ryan. and they cut yeah. out reference all they the references to rats. Still couldn't have been the my couch. Explicit I didn't have a couch. references to rats. Huh. Uh, that was the point. Huh. Yeah, the couch. I didn't, was I didn't the have point. a couch the entire time anyway. that I existed and cared about Coriolanus, <laughs> which is like literally never. I I didn't have a couch. <laughs> Coriolanus and a couch, never the twain shall meet. Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. And this week it is Coriolanus 201 with special guest expert Dr. Haley Swenson. Yay! Welcome, Haley. Thanks, guys. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell tell the people who you are. Sure. I. I am a doctor, like my yeah, friend Jess Hamlet pointed out. Doctor. I'm currently working for the Folger Institute at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., where I live with my husband and my two beautiful cats. Yes. Awesome. Can vouch mm-hmm. for all of mm-hmm. those things. <laughs> yep. Full disclosure, uh, Haley and I go way back. Way back Way to the back. beginnings of time. Since before either of us were married. Since Aww. before I cared that much about Shakespeare. <laughs> Not since before I cared that much about Shakespeare, because I yeah, definitely cared out. about Shakespeare for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But we have known each other legit since we were teenagers. Isn't that terrifying? Oh, shit. That's true. We haven't been friends that long, but we've known each other that long. We've known each other for a really long time. Yeah. Aw, yay. I know. I know, right? <laughs> Haley is, I don't, like, yep. my oldest friend that I still talk to. Yeah, same, actually. There's, like, one person from middle school that I still speak to, which is wild. But anyway, uh, we went to college together. We went to college ra- together in the Pacific Northwest. Of saying that. Yeah. yeah. Um. So well, great. we're thrilled to have you. Thrilled, yeah. thrilled to have Thanks. you. Thanks. Happy to we be here. So excited to have you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoy our show and come back for more. Uh, this is a 201 level episode. Mm-hmm. And Those uh, are, yeah, this is uh, how it goes. Getting, they're getting standard these yep. days. Uh, but basically, if you don't know Coriolanus, we have an episode already out there that will 
teach you about what happens in Coriolanus. Yes. Um, but now we're we're not gonna we're not we're gonna do a different thing about Coriolanus. Yeah. yeah. I listened to it today. It was very helpful. Thanks. Oh, good. And also I deeply sexy. Virgilia, who needed yeah. a reminder. I it's remember it being sexy. sexy play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't remember anything else about it except that when I listened to it after it was out, I was in uh, the computer lounge on campus and I got like a little hot and bothered and I was like, yeah. Ooh, oh dear. Yep. Ooh, a little hot under the yeah. collar. Yes. Yeah. 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 So in our 201 level episodes, we want to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to this play. <laughs> Um, so today we've asked Haley here to talk to us about rats and the space of the city and how there is literally nothing sexier than being gross, apparently. Yeah, apparently. So, um, but before we get there, because it's a 201 episode, we always talk about rhetoric some more. So, uh, in the 101 episodes, which we don't do anymore, really, we discussed definitions of rhetorical devices and gave examples. But at the 201 level, we revisit a device that we've done already and we talk about the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance of this particular play. Um, so in our 101 episodes, uh, we would say, that identifying rhetoric helps us understand a character or give us a possible line reading. Um, but what does that mean? So to answer that, we have to look at the context in which the device is used, think about the kind of device it is. Uh, and this week, I could think of no better device to return to than epizuxis. Epizuxis! Uh, epizuxis! Epizuxis! Yes, which is exactly what Justice just did. It is the repetition of a word or words immediately with sort of nothing in between. Um and, and in particular, its use with the mob. Yes, I, uh, yes, I hear you. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, thanks, Jess. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a theorist, so I'm just waiting for this part to be over. Great. That's I fine. mean, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, so it's not unusual for Shakespeare to write, you know, unison speech in mob scenes. Um, however, the unison repetitive speech seems for some reason heightened in this play and actually this device in general is sort of all over this play in a weird weird way that i can't really explain that's what she said <sighs> um but but for example there are very few scenes you know maybe a handful of scenes where where there's a mob of citizens or towards the end um conspirators who who kill coriolanus um but they say things like speak speak resolved resolved we note we note come come Content, content, amen, amen, all the way down to down with him, down with him, no, 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 uh, to the rock, to the rock with him, it shall be so, it shall be so, and my favorite, kill, 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 kill him, hold, 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 I mean, and that is when, uh, guess what, they kill him, it's kind of amazing. The kill, 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 kill him to me, if you ask me, which you didn't, but I'm going to say it, is like a little bit lazy writing on Shakespeare's part. Like five kills, really. Yeah. Like, But it dude. comes out of the mouths of know, all of these murderers while they're killing. I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting phenomenon to examine in this play. Like you can find the epizuxis 
everywhere. It's used by many characters, not least of which is Coriolanus himself. Um, but it's interesting that much of it comes from the mobs and it's not always the same mob all the way through. Like I said, at first it's Roman citizens and at the end it's a mob of Ophidius's murderer pals um, and then some Volskian murderer pals. murderer pals. Sounds like an after school <laughs> special that's gone horribly wrong. Um, and, and then some Volskian lords and, and it's, you know, Coriolanus is set up as the character in this play who's like haughty and he hates the common man and he's so proud and he's disdainful, right? And and you're not exactly supposed to sympathize with him, I don't think. But at the same time, the way this crowd is characterized and the way this, this device is used, it makes them actually sound like sheep much of the time. Um, and or it makes like me a hate swarm. them. Yeah, or like mm. a swarm, and it totally makes mm-hmm. me uh, hate them. <laughs> so, like, what's that about? I don't. I don't know. It's um, it's an interesting phenomenon, and I I've actually sort of been dying for this episode to come around so that I could talk about the epizuxis in this play. Um, but there you go, Haley. Rhetoric intermission over. <laughs> and I, now I'm going to turn it over to you. So much shorter and sweeter than it usually is. Yeah, I know. Well, Which I mean, I, I'm going to return tonight. to it, though, because I'm going to want us to talk a lot about the crowd. Awesome. And what the crowd does and how sympathetic we're supposed to be to the crowd. Great. And why is it that Coriolanus hates the crowd? Because I can never actually figure this out. Amazing. So, Take us there, which baby. is going to be a theme because I can't. So, thank you guys for asking me to talk about this play, which I love. Um, it's one of to. like the three plays that I love the most in Shakespeare, which I was realizing today are all like men, like angry men in the wilderness plays, what like are Time in Athens and King Lear. Yeah, like oh, angry I dudes Lear. outside. I love them so much. I don't know why. There's something about. <laughs> about what they're doing, what they're thinking about and how they're thinking about humanity and what it means to be human and the like thin, thin, thin line, which really isn't a line, which is more of like a porous dotted situation that divides us from animals. And specifically in Coriolanus, I'm interested in rats. And this is my big disclaimer. I cannot stress this enough. Hashtag the 2019 meme. I cannot stress this enough. I'm really still thinking about this topic. So um, Rats and Coriolanus was a chapter in my dissertation, which I finished because I'm a doctor, y'all. Yeah, you are. Um, Can I yeah, pause I briefly for a moment and just ask you what your your dissertation was about? Or, or is that going to derail us too much? No, it's okay. It um, it was called. It's easier to start with how it's what, it's what it's called. It was called "Dog, Horse, Rat: Humans and Animals at the Margins of Life," Ooh. and it was about. Thank you. It was very it was about good. How, P.S. Thank you, Jess Hamlet. It was. it was about how people tell stories about trauma and understand marginalization and dehumanization through animal bodies, and even more specifically, it was about what are the uses of objection? Like what Mm. can we make out of being, is is there anything that people have found that they can make out of being dehumanized? So it was an animal studies dissertation, but I drew a lot on disability theory and queer studies and really these theories of the margins, I think, Mm -hmm. and like what kinds of lives people make when they're forced into the margins Mm. and what is obviously the violence of that, but also are there pleasures to be found there? Is there 
resilience to be found there? Like what, what happens if we turn to the dehumanized margins? Does that make sense? Fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. So part of my, um, section on rats was about Coriolanus and I think it was actually the least successful chapter in my dissertation, but maybe because of that, Jess is throwing it down. We'll get into it. I thought it was really good. Thank you. Maybe because I'm not sure if I ever, if it ever quite connected for me, it's probably the chapter that I think about the most. It's the argument that like got away from me. Right. Mm -hmm. I think this play in general, like just, I cannot ever pin it down. It's like a Rubik's cube that I am constantly turning and turning and turning and twisting and trying to sort out. And I can never get it all to line up. I just can't ever quite figure out exactly what it's trying to say in a way that I really love. So anyway, briefly, the position I was, I was driving at in Coriolanus was this, although rats are only explicitly mentioned twice in the play, I think that the idea of the rat as this troublingly resistant body, which parasitically infiltrates and subverts all of this human space completely infests the text. Like rats are only cited twice, but I think that they are crawling through like every little bit of this text. And I think that who is identified as rat-like shifts and changes. Um, But I think that, you know, although the play is most directly linking rats and the plebeians, right? Like Mm -hmm. the direct references we have are people calling the plebeians rats. I think that the plebeians kind of ultimately reject that power because they're trying to move up this ladder of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, because they think that if they can just be human, like if they can just access humanity, then they will be safe and they'll be protected and they'll be in this charmed circle. But of course the whole play, or at least the whole arc of Coriolanus is that you are not safe in that charmed circle of the human, right? That it is always contingent and precarious and you always have to like re earn it, um, in society, and so instead, I think that like the, the part of the play that is most fascinating to me is when Coriolanus gets shut out, right? When he becomes like the angry man in the wilderness that I'm so obsessed with, because <laughs> I think that's when he is the most rat-like, when he's actually approaching Aphidius, especially like the moment that I always turn to and cannot ever stop thinking about and cannot figure out entirely what to do with it is when he is standing on the hearth of Aphidius' home and all the servants around him like get out of here. Like they're trying to shoo him out literally like he is a rat, like he is a pest in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what sets him up for like the only time in this play he ever finds anything remotely approaching happiness or freedom, right? Like this kind of charmed moment when they're this, when he and Ophidius can sort of reach for this other thing, Mm -hmm. but then it all gets foreclosed. Right. And the Rubik's cube turns again and then I can't make heads or tails of it, but I think that there is something about the city and about grain and about grain riots and about rats and the way that Coriolanus is rat-like that I'm hoping that we can solve today, but we won't. It would be great if we could, but we won't. We can try, though. I could talk for hours about that scene with him and Ophidius, but but for different reasons. I mean, (laughs) well, regardless, regardless. What is it? Okay. Um, what interests you about cutting that? What do you think is lost if those explicit references to rats are cut? 
this whole movement that I see in the play, this whole, so let's think through what rats do, right? Like what are rats? They are, they're problems. Mm -hmm. They live in the holes in your house. So they represent penetration in a way that I think this play is constantly thinking through. And in a way that I think Coriolanus is obsessed with, right? Like all my, all my dude ever wants to do is to get penetrated by swords and knives and Ophidius probably. probably. And right. And so maybe stepping away from rats for a second, let's talk about the plebeians. Why does Coriolanus hate them so much? I, Cause it doesn't actually make sense to me. I, Cause what he he says that they're dirty and they're stinky, but what does right. the man want to be constantly his whole life? Well, like, All he ever wants is to be dirty and stinky and bloody yeah, and Yeah, but he outranks them in, like, in nobility, like, both in title and, as he sees it, like, actual, you know, like, human nobility, like, the nobility of man or whatever. Like, he, I think he constantly rates himself above, above those people, above the, like, the stinking horde of people. That's, that's what I get from it, like... You know, he constantly talks about how how low they are and how high above them he is um, and how, you know, they should they have no business telling him what to do. Um, nobody has any business telling him what to do. Not even really the people who are at the same station as he. Sure. But I think that for Coriolanus, status means something so different because all he ever. So I'm really influenced by this argument by James Kuzner that what Coriolanus wants more than anything else is undoing, mm-hmm. right? That, and that part of why he hates the plebeians so much is because that is the opposite of what they want. They want safety and wholeness, mm-hmm. which is part of why the, the figure of the rat is so interesting to me because it mm-hmm. gnaws away at any kind of wholeness. And it shows that, you know, the sense of safety that you have in it, whether in a built space or in kind of a political space is a fiction, right? That like you mm-hmm. can never, ever keep the porousness away from it. Hmm. But this is what I'm saying. This is a, this is, I can't, I can't get a handle on this. Well, play that's fascinating. Ever. Can you, can you talk much. a little more about that? How he looks for undoing. Do you mean like literal undoing? Like he's got a death wish. Is that yeah. What that theory is? Yeah. Yes, that's what that theory he's is. He's trying to die. Mm-hmm. He's a death wish. He's trying to die. That he that he has a burn it down kind of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Can can you um, say yeah. a little bit more about what you mean when you say that Coriolanus wants to be penetrated? Because all I can think of is sexually penetrated, and I'm sure that you are not entirely meaning it in that way. I'm not. So I'm thinking of it more in a sense of, Yeah. I mean, I don't not mean it that way, but mostly I mean that he just doesn't want to be whole ever that he doesn't, mm. I think he doesn't feel, I mean, I think he doesn't feel good when he's whole and he doesn't understand himself when he's whole. He wants to be scratched. Mm. He wants to be wounded. He wants to be scarred and bloody. Right. He wants, what he wants is like the intimacy and the closeness that only sure. comes with dissolving boundaries. Mm. Mm. But not in a time of peace, right? Not those kinds of. Not in a yeah. time of peace. Yeah. yeah. Like the only, the only intimacy you can find, it's what my mom, the divorce attorney used to call negative intimacy, right? It's 
Like the only time you really feel close to somebody is when you're fighting them. Yeah. It's the toxic masculinity intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated. I have so many questions. Uh, Ask them. So I, (laughs) yeah, I have, I have read this chapter, although it's been years because Mm -hmm. you have had your PhD now for multiple years. A year and a half. Yeah. It's more than one year. So it's more than one year. That's true. I agree. Um, I just, I'm just, I'm clarifying. Yes. It's, it's been a minute. Uh, in, in this chapter on rats, were there other texts or was it just Coriolanus? Um, so it was paired with a chapter about Midnight Cowboy. Right. The John Voight and Dustin Hoffman film. My dissertation was all over the place. Your dissertation was perfect. Thank you. It also opened with, and I spent quite a bit of time with a poem by Emily Dickinson, which I love so much. I just, yeah, it's been a minute since I really sat with it. Like I, uh, like I keep saying, I think it was not my most successful chapter, but I still, I still think there's a there there. I think that like rats are important. And I think that the play is not, I think the politics of the play are really confusing and I'm not alone in that, right? Like, um, you know, a lot of different people have said, like, this is a play that it can can be used to whatever political ends you want yeah. to turn it to, not 100% yeah. effectively, right? But, like, this is yeah. a play that you can, like, can satisfy both sides of the aisle. Um, and I just think, I think you're right that, like, the plebeians end up really being obnoxious, but I think that they're obnoxious because they give away too much mm-hmm. in a way. What like, do you I mean think they the, give away too much? What they want is... So Rome is a system, right? It is like a tightly controlled political system. And there are people who are in and there are people who are out and it is constantly shifting, Mm -hmm. right? And it is also, because of that, constantly unsafe. And I think that the thing that the plebeians give away is that they want to be part of that system and don't understand the ways that it's like constitutionally doomed to fail or the way that you're never really safe in it. Okay, talk to me about your take on Coriolanus, guys. Well, I I love the image that you use of the Rubik's Cube, because I, too, feel that way about this play. Well, about a lot of plays. You know, I, I uh, the ones that I love the most, the ones that are in my top five, are are all, I guess, in, in their own way, like Rubik's Cube plays for me, because they keep me interested and keep my brain twisting, and I never quite figure them out. Right. Um, and I kind of love that, that, that I can't figure them out. Um, but I love watching other people try to figure them out, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> uh, on stage, you know. So I want to I want to bring it back a little bit to rats and how there's nothing sexier than being gross. Yeah, mm-hmm. because rats I think, and I know that you have very strong feelings about rats, so I'm trying to be very (laughs) delicate and gentle, but I I think that you would not disagree that historically rats uh, have been categorized as gross and vermin and so on, right? This is a, this is a thing. This This is is, known. Sure. This is a a nearly universal perception of, of rats. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coriolanus, as we have discussed, is dirty and gross and fighting and sexy and wants to always be dirty and gross and fighting and sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I care very little about this play. 
as both of you know yeah. this is not not a play that i care for in particular so is therefore also not a play i know very well um but the part of the play that i will die for is the sexy speech that Coriolanus delivers to our darling Ophidius. Yeah, I see you biting your lip. You know the one. I, I think you mean the one that Ophidius delivers to Coriolanus. That's the one that I meant. That's yes. right. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, the one that Coriolanus delivers to Ophidius isn't nearly as sexy. Right. No, it's the, no, the Martius, Martius, sweeping down together yes. in my dreams, fisting yeah. each other's throats or whatever. The sexy yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so if we're thinking about, if we're thinking about penetration, sexually and other kinds and we're thinking about rats who um and i think that this comes from your dissertation Haley. although i i could not tell you where um but rats have the ability to go everywhere right they can fit into small spaces they can penetrate you know anything um so if we're if we're putting all of these things together in this moment where aphidius is making sonic love to Coriolanus and also the audience. How do you think or slash do you think the the rat imagery can help an audience or a reader in that moment sort of encapsulate the whole play? Do you, is that a coherent question? Yeah, it is. That's a great question. I like the metaphor of the house, right? Yeah. Like Good. there's the house where like I live with my husband and I live with our cats and we have our little petty squabbles and we, you know, or like there's your house where we fight about whether or not there was a couch <laughs> and what movie we watched on the couch. Right. And like, that's the play. And we know that play, that's the human play. Right. What I'm really interested in is, and like, I, I there is that play in Coriolanus, partially, I think, with Virgilia, whose name I constantly forget, sidebar, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cannot remember her She's name to save my life. She's kind of forgettable. She's kind of forgettable. But, like, that's, like, the play, right? Like, you have the wife, you have the kid who eats the butterfly, which is another, like, whole thing that we could talk about. Um, but that's the play. And this thing with Aphidius, this thing that gets coded all like rats, right? Like, and I'm not the first person to argue this, right? Like there's something very sodomitical about rats because they, to put it really frankly, they go in holes where they're not supposed to go. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's happening underneath and burrowing through yes. the surface of the play that is supposed to be going on. Mm. Right. And there's this, so and hot. I think that happens so politically as well. Right. The theory yeah. is that like, Again, to be really basic, it's like grassroots action versus like the big overarching action. It's sure. just the little things sure. that happen that for me is more rat-like, I think. Mm. Well, and also there's this whole other scaffolding about this that I uh-huh. am not super equipped to go into, right? But like this whole history of objection in queerness, right, that comes mm. out of the AIDS crisis and like all this theory that comes around what happens when we are diseased or when like, you know, this coating of dirt and gross and filth and pestilence and disease, all these things that we see operating in Coriolanus, right? What happens when that comes to accrue around this one sex act and how can we, instead of running away from that, build communities around it and like dig deeper into it. I I think that this is a super chewy subject and I think I think that's the the Rubik's cube analogy again is 
um, really fucking useful because all I want to do now is like think about this play and I don't like this play um, <laughs> and I want to I want to sit down with my text right and be like okay rats yeah. and sex and thing and like draw connections and like I get mm-hmm. like and gaps it out and walls and, yeah, yeah 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 I want to I want to do like a spatial map of this play vis-a-vis vermin yeah yeah well and the idea of not just Coriolanus's rat-like tendencies but Ophidius's too like he's he's sort of gnawing at the back of Coriolanus's consciousness all the time Mm, you know Um, yeah and and I, I think that just goes to what you're saying of like he's got it's peacetime now like he's freshly home from war he's got his son to look to and his mom and all these women waiting for him and like the home and the the life you know of a senator waiting for him like gift wrapped for him and Mm -hmm. all he can think about is the next time he's going to clash with ophidius Mm -hmm. and and it excites him more than anything else uh and and that's the thing about yeah that's the thing about coriolanus being just like a high status guy who hates the plebeians that never quite tracks for me mm-hmm. because there's so much about the trappings of that life that he is also more quietly disdainful of, right? Like mm-hmm. he has my boy has zero interest in his like quiet, safe life. Right. Like the, the American dream, right? Which is obviously yeah. not the American dream. Like the Roman dream, he has zero interest in. It is the Roman that... dream. <laughs> and I think that he sees the way that it's a fiction, right? The way that yeah. it's like this built thing to make you feel safe and then to make you, right? Like yeah. the whole fiction of Rome is built up to for control, to control the plebeians, mm-hmm. right? And so... I just, I just don't see Coriolanus buying into that ever in the play. Yeah. Like he's not interested in it. Yeah. Which means that, like for me, his his political, you know, his, his politics are so opaque. Can't ever figure them out. I'm not sure he has any. I mean, I'm not I, sure he has any either. I, I mean, uh, let's, you know, to be honest, I was just watching again the Donmar Warehouse one on, you know, but like because he can't. <laughs> he can't deal right. He literally, he cannot deal with people. He can't mince words the way a skilled politician like Menenius can, right? He doesn't play the game, nor does it seem he wants to play the game. I, I have, I think that's where my empathy for him comes in is like, he, 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 people are constantly trying to make him into something that he's not, which is a, a politician and a suave, you know, stayed stoic uh, senator guy and that's not what he is i think yeah i think you're right he'd rather be out in the mud scratching and stabbing and slashing and hacking his way to death yeah yeah i don't know and i i wonder if like yeah if the people just get in the way or i mean they do kind of and they are kind of obnoxious i mean let's be honest they sway with like (laughs) the Every Roman mob, they do. it feels like. I've, you know, I've seen a lot of Julius Caesar lately, and it feels like the mob in Caesar is Ugh. the same way, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure Shakespeare liked mobs too much, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, because, I mean, this is a long fight, right? But, like, he was landed gentry. And, in fact, 
you know, the Midlands riot, right, which was a grain riot that happened in 1607, which Coriolanus is like very definitely and clearly speaking to, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The Midlands riot was aimed at exactly the kind of landowner that Shakespeare was because of enclosure and the way that all this capital was being mm. piled into the hands of just a few people. Yeah, which is another thing that like grain... I think part of, so part of it is that it's just like a beautiful play and there's a lot of aspects to it. But I also think that like my frustration with this play is that grain and hunger is so present in the first like third and then it drops out. Mm -hmm. And that really bothers me. And I think it's part of why I find it so hard to write about. Like I, I kind of always forget about the last third of this play because I'm so interested in the space of the city and grain and riots and all of that. And then I, I think it like moves into a different register that is harder for me to connect to who get interested in, which I bet Aubrey, I had was probably the part you like the best <laughs> uh, from how you talk about it. <laughs> I do like that middle bit when he banishes himself and throws himself at Ophidius's feet. Yeah. I do like that. Yeah. The best. Um, but it all, all kind of Phidias he throws himself on. <laughs> <laughs> but it all kind of dick. falls apart from there, right? Like once he's once he's at that point, it's just a downhill steamroll. Like he can't see it, but we can. You know, he can't see right. it coming, but even Ophidius can at that point. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna use this guy until he's not useful anymore, mm-hmm. and then he gonna die. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I do like. I do like all of that. I, I f- think it's interesting thinking about rats and then thinking about grain and hunger and th- also thinking about how visceral this play is. And I mean, like the mentions of viscera and p- parts of the body and like mm-hmm. the stomach in particular um, and food. And, and there's, there's just a lot of language bouncing around all over this play um, to do with the body and like limbs and, um, but particularly like the torso, uh, which I find fascinating. And I wonder if that, wonder if those two ideas are connected, the hunger, but also the imagery of the body all the way through the play. I think you can tell how generative this has been because we're all just like in our heads being yeah. like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's a chewy play. There's a Duh. lot. Mm-hmm. It's a chewy play. There's a lot to sink your teeth into. And no answers to be had. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not in the business of answers. We're in the business of <laughs> what? Sex jokes and fart jokes and questions. Mm-hmm. And okay. more jokes. I'm gonna take a hard right then. Can Great. we talk about the moment when the women are all talking about the kid and one of the other V named women? I don't Volumnia? remember. Just like, Must be. yeah. The, Volumnia the is the friend. mother. Valeria is the friend. Oh, Valeria. The Why friend they all have V names, like, I don't know. It's very confusing. She's praising the kid. She's like, I saw him chasing a butterfly and he caught it and then he let it go and he caught it and then he let it go. And then he fell down. And maybe because he was upset, he jumped back up, caught the butterfly and fucking ate it. Anybody? What part of the play is that in? That's early. That is it's early. It's early. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking. Uh, and Volumnia is like, oh, he's <laughs> the best. And right. Virgilia is like, he's a <laughs> fucking little psychopath. Right. <laughs> and I love it. And I don't know. 
that's all I have to say about I it. I think I just it's really Act it. 1, Scene 3. Oh, God, that is early. Yeah. It's really early. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, it is. is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, yes. In, uh, in Valeria, line 3, line 60. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my word, the father's son. I'll swear it is a very pretty boy. On my troth, I looked upon him a Wednesday, half an hour together. He's such a confirmed countenance. I saw him run after a gilded butterfly, and when he caught it, he let it go again, and after it again, and over and over he comes, and up again, catched it again. Or whether his fall enraged him, or how t'was, he did so set his teeth and tear it. Oh, I warrant how he mammocked it. The fuck is a, what is mammock? Tore to pieces. Aha, tore to pieces. To pieces. Wow. And Volumni answers Wanon's father's moods. Yeah. Wow. And they're like, oh, oh what a noble child. It's like proof of the kids' warlike tendencies, just like papa. Just what it reminds me of is those how some women will buy their son's shirts that say something like, Daddy's little monster, or yeah. I don't know, I made my mother cry. I don't no. think they say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a shirt or two for some children that says I made my mother cry <laughs> yeah words. the way that this like terrifying behavior in yeah. boys is like oh it's cute it's funny mm-hmm. yeah 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 well and especially coming from this particular child's grandmother who like earlier in the same scene you know would rather have her son come home to her in a coffin then return with no scars like she's counting the guy's scars on his body like that's fucked up yeah i i'm not sure that i had remembered this part of the play i remember the stuff about the coffin but i don't think i remembered the butterfly bit you know there's something so gentle and delicate and helpless about a butterfly yeah Mm -hmm. you know it's not like he pulled the wings off like ants or something sure right uh, yeah. a, a butterfly is a noble creature. It's a, a a thing of beauty, something to be cherished. And then he, like, ate it. Yeah. And he ate In it. Anger. Which is wild. He tore it to shreds with his teeth. Yeah. He yeah. tore it to shreds with his teeth. Kids yeah. a sociopath. Right. There's another. There's another butterfly. I'm trying to find it. Three instances of butterfly in Shakespeare's works. No way. Yeah. All of them in Coriolanus. Right. Uh, I know. Um, it's in five four. Agrippa. Menenius Agrippa says there is difference between a grub and a butterfly, yet your butterfly was a grub. This Coriolanus is grown from man to dragon. He has wings. He's more than a creeping thing. Is he, though? Is he? And does he want to be? This is the question that I have about Coriolanus. The middle reference to butterflies is from Cominius, who talks about hmm. Coriolanus. Um, and he's talking about the fact that Coriolanus has joined the Volskis. And he says... He is their god. He leads them like a thing made by some other deity than nature that shapes man better. And they follow him against us brats with no less confidence than boys pursuing summer butterflies or butchers killing flies. So there's that return to the image of a little boy killing a butterfly. 
but this time mm-hmm. Comenius definitely means Coriolanus is going to tear up Rome. Mm-hmm. Ooh, what a cool callback. Uh, I'd never, ever, ever noticed that before. You gotta pay attention to the animals, man. Yeah, clearly. Jesus. Jack it's confusing most of the time. Out here <laughs> changing hearts and minds, like <laughs> showing me. us to the animal kingdom. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So much to chew on. Mm-hmm. Not to stop the chewing prematurely, but we should perhaps switch ears. Yeah. We um, should. So. Move it along. Yeah. So uh, occasionally after we talk about whatever we talk about, um, then we talk about something else. I know. Wild. It's, it's wild. Wet. <laughs> how, wet. how podcasts work. Wow. Um, We're going to make a hard but, left away yep, from, from, from mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. topic to another yeah. uh so we get the impression that many of our listeners are students in you know some form of study thing that's what a student is uh so we occasionally talk about grad school things that uh, apply particularly to grad school um and this week uh, we have Haley here with us who is going to help us have a conversation about something that is close to her heart which is darling Haley. I mm-hmm. think that we should talk about dissertation isolation. I think that is a real thing to talk about. Cause that is a real thing to talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went through that in a really big way, partially yes, because I moved 2000 miles away from my department, which I do not recommend <laughs> if you can avoid it. Although not everyone can always yeah, avoid it. It's Sometimes true. It's true. life intervenes and you have to make a change, but mm-hmm. it's really hard. I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because a friend of mine just today um, is now ABD. I'm really proud Yay. of her. But so I've been Shout thinking out a lot. to your friend who's ABD. Shout out to my friend, Emily McLeod. Yeah, it. what up, Emily McLeod? Friend yeah, of Emily McLeod. Emily McLeod? I know who Emily that is. McLeod. Yeah. She's now ABD. Shout out um, to you, girl. So, and you know, I, 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 in my new position at the Folger, I meet a ton of grad students and I, and I've just had this conversation a lot that like, once you are out of coursework for a lot of people, things change. It's fucking hard. And I think that people sort of vaguely say that Mm -hmm. in the kind of way that in the college that you and I attended together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. would say, Ochem is really hard. And you're like, oh, ha, 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 Ochem is going to be really hard. And then you go home for Thanksgiving and you sleep for 14 hours because it's really <laughs> fucking hard. I never took Ochem. Yeah, I did. It's maybe it. not a surprise to people who know me. But it's really fucking hard. And I've been just trying to think about what kind of advice we do we want to give first, people. First, let's talk about maybe why it's hard. You know, right. for, for me and perhaps for you also, it's the, the transition from coursework to not is hard because sort of immediately your entire routine ceases to exist. Your entire routine ceases to exist. And the right. other really crucial thing is that suddenly there are like zero goalposts or they're goalposts, but they are so far away in the future. Sure. And for me, at least I am like. I'm like a hound for sniffing out when a deadline is not a really firm deadline. (laughs) And without the time constraints of a semester of class ending, I just had a really hard time feeling like anything really mattered. I felt like I was just 
spinning in isolation forever. Yeah, that is true. You know, here, because what, what happens when you finish coursework, right, is then, then you, there, whatever your exams are, orals or written's or both or whatever, um, and then the prospectus, and then the prospectus defense, and then you write for however long you write, right? So yeah, here, at least, all of their, all of those things are sort of like, you should do this in your fifth semester-ish. You yeah. should do this in your sixth semester-ish. Like, zero, there's no, there's nothing. Rigidity. Right? There's no yeah. rigidity to it. Yeah. Yeah. And some people, I think, can, I think some people do better than others mm-hmm. without that rigidity. I did mm-hmm. so badly. I struggled so hard without having those really clear goals. Yeah, I have not struggled quite as much, but it certainly has been um, a, a, an extreme period of adjustment, right? Uh, especially because in my last semester of coursework, I had five classes that I was taking and two that I was teaching. Yeah. So I was incredibly scheduled. And then I went basically overnight to, I have to be on campus twice a week to teach and that's it. So what would your advice be for people? I think for me, I think it would have helped to have just really sat with the thought of what was going to change and really understood a little bit better mm-hmm. and just thought through a little bit more what it was going to feel like, look like to not be in coursework all the time. Cause also sure. you're not seeing people all the time necessarily, right? Like you're not yeah. bouncing yeah. ideas off of people. Um, and then suddenly everybody is at a slightly different place. It feels like too. That is Some true. of your friends are still in coursework and you're yeah. ABD and you're off on what feels like or can feel like your own. Yeah. And even, even those of your friends who are also in that same preparing for comps, writing the prospectus and then ABD, there can be so much varied time, right? Like I took, I was in my cohort, I was the first one to take comps by oh, six or eight weeks, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was not the first one to defend, but like one guy defended a uh, prospectus and then maybe I defended like two weeks later. And then there was a period of something like six months or something before the next defense. Like it can it can vary very wildly, I suppose, is, is all I'm saying. What has worked for me? Um, and for my friend Courtney, shout out to Courtney, Courtney. Uh, who is in in it with me. <laughs> she is the reason for all of the things that I am right now, she is my my beating heart and my life and my light. Um, we love Courtney. She's keeping me sane. Uh, what Courtney and I have done since uh, coursework is we have upped the amount of time we spend together. So we go to yoga together twice a week. We rock climb together twice a week. We picked up a water aerobics class once-ish a week. And so we have these dedicated times where we see each other socially And we're also doing a physical activity and there isn't a lot of time for conversation while we're doing yoga because like yoga, but the before and after and in these other activities, the during is a lot of time for being social. And we, you know, we gossip and we talk about boys and whatever. Um, But we also spend a lot of time talking to each other about what we're working on and where we are and what we're stuck with. Um, And I think that, creating a new routine based around a hobby or an activity or a meal, whatever, like 
creating a new routine and having a routine buddy better if you can have a routine support group, right? right? Putting things into your schedule that create that illusion of structure that coursework gives you, right? So that you still have things sure. that you need to do every day, whatever, is helpful for keeping your mind working on the on the same kind of okay, it's Monday, this is my routine for Monday. Okay, it's Tuesday, this is my mm-hmm. routine for Tuesday, that kind of thing. Um, but also gets me one out of my apartment and away from my desk, which is so mm-hmm. fucking valuable. Uh, and then puts me out in the world to be like, here's a person who is in my program, who is also in a similar stage that I am, who understands the kinds of problems that we grapple with, when we talk about these things, let's say words to each other. And mm-hmm. that, you know, this is this is not unique to the dissertation writing process. This is sort of any right. academic pursuit, right? Is like get fucking out into the world and fucking talk to other people. Right? Get out like, into the world, talk to other people. Person, Probably yeah. one of the most valuable things that I did was I started teaching. I started volunteering at a class. I taught creative writing to kids and it was the best. It was so fun. And it got me, it was on like a regular schedule and I saw other people and it was actually, for me, it was valuable to also see people that were not in that world at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and to just connect with a different aspect of life and myself Mm -hmm. and my Mm -hmm. skills and my values. It was great. Give back, do other things, right? Because you're, you are no longer in coursework. So you no longer have to write papers or read a hundred pages a week or whatever. So all of that time, which you, yes, can and should put towards your dissertation also can be reorganized into doing something non-academic, which is frankly how you will survive this profession. Um, The other thing I want to advocate for is if you are in the position to And if you have an advisor who is amenable to make a regular physical meeting with them, I see my Mm -hmm. advisor every Tuesday um, because I am her assistant (laughs) and we mostly (laughs) talk about like programming stuff in the department, but consistently we spend five minutes or so at the end of each meeting being like, yep, I'm writing or like, hey, so this is shit and let me tell you why it's shit and please help me fix it. Right. Like that is such good advice because I know so many people, including myself uh who did not have that set up for whatever reason and then are terrified. Right. The idea of like running into your advisor in the hall is so scary. Right. The tendency is to, once you have this project is to go away and hide. Right. And like hoard it and wash it and shine it and make it pretty (laughs) and precious. Like a little raccoon. Yeah. Or a beautiful garbage animal. Or golem. Yes. And and to, to keep it secret and to keep it hidden until it's presentable. But like, Mm -hmm. spoiler alert, babes, it will never be presentable. It will only be ever good enough and that is fine like you you cannot make it better unless you get it out in the world nothing happens in a vacuum no one achieves anything alone right don't hoard your brain i guess well and if today's earlier conversation i think is proof of that actually right because Haley, you said this was the part of your dissertation that you still kind of you return to that you chew on that you're not settled with you're not quite happy with it ever and like 
I think talking it out still and going back to it and returning to it, I think that's a healthy thing. That's not necessarily like a bad thing. Sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think some of that, some of what we said certainly is, is useful. Oh and yeah. Good advice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fuck it. Um, should we gossip and then get the hell out of here? Yeah. Yeah. So very briefly, you know, we do try to keep um, our 201 gossip play centric unless we just can't. So we're going to start I mean, out that way at least. So yeah. We sort of can't anymore, but we no, start we there. Yeah. We try. Okay, so there's if you live in uh, the UK, if you're near Sheffield, uh, you can see a production of Coriolanus uh, in March 2020, the beginning of March to the end of March 2020 yes. at Sheffield. What up, what up, Sheffield? I had friends that went to Sheffield University. Um, and in the US, there were... They have an amazing animal studies program. Do Sorry, they? sidebar. <laughs> Incredible. Hmm. Yeah. Good to know. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, since this is November of 2019, we have missed the numerous 2019 productions of Coriolanus that we could have talked about, including the one at the public in New York City this summer. Uh, but, but we missed them. But there are a couple coming up in 2020, like Colorado Shakes from July to August. Uh, and then Theater Santa Fe will also uh, run it in most of May in 2020. So... There are very few areas in this country. If your local theater is putting on a production of Coriolanus and we somehow missed it and not have not talked about it, please holla at us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespearshow.com and we will correct our mistake. Also, and I already put this out there, but just to say it again, on the internet archive.org, archive.org, you can watch the Tom Hiddleston Coriolanus. Just throwing that out there. It's very it's good. Just, it's, it's, very, it's very, it's very good. good. It's very good. And it's just out there. So yeah. Go watch Listen it. for rats. Um, <laughs> so on, on the note of, uh, the public, um, mm. they're much ado with Danielle, help me out. Brooks Johnson, yep. Danielle Brooks, Danielle Brooks. She played tasty um, on orange is the new black. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. Uh, their their product the summer's production of Much Ado is premiering on PBS this week. It will what? be out by the time that this episode airs. It yes. it comes out on Friday the twenty second. Uh-huh. That's um, amazing. So yeah, excited. you can watch it on PBS. It's part of their great performances series. I can't fucking wait because this production got such good reviews and she played it while she was pregnant, which like, what up, girl? Um I'm so excited. So check that out. Me too. Also, we were going to put a link up uh, in our show notes to this uh, open letter slash essay um, that came out today uh, on the MLA blog. It's called Black Cook Shakespearean. Black That's with three Ks. Yeah. I'm just going to go with black Shakespearean (laughs) colon a call to action for medieval and early modern studies. It's co-authored by Kimberly Coles, who's at the university of Maryland, Kim Hall, Kim F Hall, who is at uh, Barnard or Bard college question mark somewhere in New York. Uh, Apologies to Dr. Hall for not knowing off the top of my head where she is. Uh, And Ayanna Thompson, who is uh, currently at Arizona state, Arizona state. Um, and, and the, Dr. Hall is at Barnard College. Barnard. There it is. Barnard. I knew it was bar or something. Mm-hmm. Um, this letter slash essay is fantastic. 
Everybody needs to fucking go read it. It is a call to action about the problem of white supremacy infiltrating the field of medievalism and early modern studies, and also how the the field and the profession as a whole are not nurturing and supporting scholars of color and how if we continue down this road the profession will annihilate itself um it is a fantastic read it is such a strong argument i i don't want to try to encapsulate it because how can i you got to read it you got to go read it you got to read it you got to take note you got to take it to heart and you got to make yep. changes yeah. um in your curriculum in your classrooms in your work go read be changed yeah and we'll definitely put a link say. to that on the landing page for this episode so great you can read it through us if nowhere else so haley what is going on in your world what are you working on these days Aside from Rubik's cubing your way through Coriolanus. <laughs> and uh, running myself into the ground with the Folger in a good way. Um, so here's some gossip. I am about to start writing a monthly series for the Folger Shakespeare Library's Shakespeare Ooh. and Beyond blog about animals. As Fucking a cool. Fact. Ooh. Yeah. The first one, the introductory post is going to come out in late December, and then we're going to start, this is a big piece of gossip, but but we're going to start with a post about rats, as a matter of fact. (gasps) Yes! So, look for that in December and January. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. That's very exciting. I'm pretty pretty looking looking forward to it. So what's yeah, gonna girl. happen to your job when the folder takes its big like two year hiatus? What what does that mean for you? That is a good question. So my job is gonna continue to be the same. So I help run the seminars and scholarly programs that the folder puts on. Oh, right on. Yeah. So my job is gonna be I will still have my job. I will still be working at the mostly closed folder. Um, but we will be running programming all over the country slash the world. We're going to yep. do the same kind of stuff that we do, but we're going to take the show on the road. So, oh. Do you any, get to go to St. Andrews? TBD. <laughs> I would very much like to go to St. Andrews. Yeah, you would. TBD. What's in St. Andrews? I mean, not Prince William anymore. So, like, what <laughs> else is there? A, a conference about Marvel. Oh, would be great. Cool. Marvel? Marvel. 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 Not yeah, Marvel. Marvel. Andrew Marvel. Comic. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Marvel. Poet of having sex while you still have time. Oh. Yep. That is very exciting. Um, mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you once again, Haley, for joining us. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Not you, Haley, but like the listeners. <laughs> but also you. But I also you, you, I suppose. I think that's fair. I feel informed. You go and think about what you I did. Thoughtful. Yeah, I will. Awesome. Um, Haley, if our listeners uh, have fallen in love with you, as I know that they have, because duh, right. um, and they want to keep up with you, how can they do that? Probably the best way is on Twitter, where they can find me at H-A-Y-L-I-E. That's Haley. That's my name. B. Swenson. S-W-E-N-S-O-N. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Can confirm that Haley is very good on Twitter. So uh, Thank you. My name is Bus Rodent, which, will, if you understand that 
not super deep reference will endear you to me forever. It's from Fleabag. Okay, so that's that's about it for all of yeah. us here at Whamlet Industries. I don't know why we are that now, but we are. Um, <laughs> next week, uh, is next week our last episode? It's our last episode of the fall, yeah. Shit, next week is our last episode of the fall, so yep. that's a thing that's happening. Yep. Um, we will be back in early to mid-January, probably. <laughs> I, we have episodes scheduled, so I don't see why not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're we're taking a break for the holidays because I demand it because I have a dissertation to write. Uh, so, but next week before we break, we will be back for Midsummer three hundred one. It's gonna be the tits, like everything we do here is the tits. So, yep. um, I mean the tits we can't talk about. Okay, it's fine, whatever. You can't talk nah. about my tits. You can talk about <laughs> the tits. Okay. okay. There's, there's a difference. Anyway, uh, Whamlet Industries out, y'all. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. We want to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to this play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. so get out. Um, so, so I can't. Today, I can't. We <laughs> have asked Haley here to... Everybody wants to be penetrated in this play. They do, <laughs> though. Okay, sorry. Oh, my God, I can't with you guys, you fucking guys. Why? I'm sorry, Jess. Why? Say what you want to say. Why? I won't interrupt. Say what you need to say.